uh, and we're live. Uh, it's uh, you're here with me, Michael Dean, the property funder. I'm here with with someone also called Dean, uh, albeit as their first name. Uh, before we start talking to Dean and learning about why they're one of the uh, foremost uh, entrepreneurs in specialist finance, um, just want to thank you for joining us. First of all, if you're a returning uh, visitor to the podcast. Uh, returning listener or viewer thank you very much uh, i'd like you just to ask you please to like or subscribe give us a five star review uh or five star rating and give us a positive review on itunes or apple podcast itunes um youtube and also on uh, spotify uh, if you can do that for us it means that we can ex expand our reach and uh, so someone like dean uh, more people can hear his story um again before we start talking to Dean, one more thing I wanted to do um, a couple of times on the last couple of episodes. Uh, we've not had the opportunity to thank our sponsor, Abemore Capital. Uh, I'm one of the co-founders of Abemore Capital, so you'd think that that would come naturally to me. But anyway, notwithstanding that, um, Abemore Capital uh, generously support the podcast uh, by providing uh, a lot of the support and infrastructure that we have today and so as a consequence of that um just want to acknowledge Avonmore capital uh, for any of your bridging and development needs in england and wales um so please get in touch we're looking at loans between 250,000 pounds all the way up to 15 million pounds uh, bridge development park complete and refurbishment slash conversion and from uh, now that's out of the way and uh, we're going to start a conversation with dean now dean um just tell us your your full name and the name of your business and what you, your what your business does Oh, uh, thanks, Michael, for having me on. Uh, it's Dean Brown. I'm the MD and founder of Orion Finance. It's basically a specialist finance brokerage uh, based in Milton Keynes, uh, but we act all over the country, uh, across to England, Wales and Scotland mostly. Um, really set out as a specialist finance broker predominantly in the property world, doing a huge amount of development finance, bridging finance and equity raising for developers. Um, albeit about a year ago, uh, just come up, uh, we set up a, a business finance arm. Um, so we're now helping uh, companies across every sector with all sorts of other finance, such as asset finance, invoice finance, and unsecured and secured business loans. So it's been it's been a busy year, let's put it that way, and uh, certainly looking forward to having a chat with you. Oh, no, it's great. Well, for, for for our listeners and our viewers' um, benefit, Dean and I have known each other for quite a long time. Uh, Avemore and Orium Finance have done a lot of transactions together, so uh, we have a, a long history of uh, of, of transactions and. Uh, Dean and I are uh, also quite friendly as well. So uh, men of a similar age, albeit with uh, in interest in different football teams. But uh, we'll, Dean might prefer if I if I skip that topic today. I imagine. Uh, yeah, so <laughs> uh, um, as a, as a recent, I say I wouldn't say a long suffering Man United fan, but I think the suffering's only been more recent, hasn't it, for Man United fans? Uh, the, the the those those of us of the Arsenal persuasion have been suffering a little bit longer than you have. So uh, welcome welcome to the club. Um, anyway, so. Talking about asset finance, you actually mentioned to me before we went live something quite interesting, uh, a project that you're looking at financing. You were something about uh, anaerobic digester. What's uh, what wh what's an anaerobic digester for those uh, for those of our listeners and viewers who are not initiated? And um, how how did you end up with that with that client? Uh, well, anaerobic digestion is a form of renewable energy, um, so. 
essentially dealing with all the cow crap that's out there um, and putting it into the machine and effectively the methane gas uh, that's created. Uh, it turns into a gas that you could utilise uh, through the plant or machinery that they, they put in place and then they feed that back into the grid as renewable energy. So uh, you talk about wind turbines and, and obviously solar, they're obviously the most common, uh, becoming more and more common, but anaerobic digestion has a lot more moving parts to it. It's a bit more complicated. Um, so there's less of that uh, sort of equipment that's out there, but it's becoming more and more common now. And um, the guys that we're dealing with, they're, they're quite well established in that space and heavily backed by, uh, uh, I think it's a French uh, venture capitalist uh, company. Um, and they're looking to roll out another 20 of these uh, anaerobic digestion plants all across the UK. So quite exciting. Well, wow. and, and how did you how did you acquire them as a as a client? Was it just a, through a referral, or, or was there a particular was there a particular process to get get in touch with them? I suppose there are some perks going to watch Manchester United. Uh, it had to be <laughs> someone that came as a guest of one of my co-ticket holders. Uh, we just got chatting really, and um, I asked him what he did, what, what his business is, and he told me. Uh, well, I deal with, uh, and he tried to put it in simple terms, and I said, oh, well, you mean anaerobic digestion? And he said, yeah, you're like one of the first people I've ever met that knows what I do. And it's, it's just by chance, really, that at my last uh, lending firm that I was at, uh, we actually invested in AD plant, and uh, I know a bit about it. So we got chatting, and yeah, he's asked us to look at the senior debt on it. So just pure luck. Yeah, OK, that's great. So it's quite helpful, actually. So the sort of stars aligned because you had the benefit of a bit of knowledge and experience through a previous firm or previous employer. Uh, and uh, and then, the you know, just by a chance meeting at, at Old Trafford, you had the opportunity to 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 get to know someone and, and potentially help them out and, and and got, you know, if you can help them with 20 sites, that's going to be a very attractive proposition uh, for you, I guess. Yeah, it'd be amazing. It's a lot better than the football was that day, let's put it that way. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, something good and positive to come out of that. And look, it's early days, but they've got a huge investment coming from this uh, venture capital fund who brought half their business. And, um, you know, if we can get in there and start helping them, um, then that could be great for us. It's something that I actually like uh, because... Uh, yeah, being a broker, um, yeah, it's something I've enjoyed most about being a broker is it's so varied. Um, it could be anyone that you meet, any phone call that you get, you know, it be, could be a total different requirement. So some days my phone rings and it's resi development, which is something we do all day, every day. Then another time it could be a care home, student, you know, renewables, uh, all sorts of stuff that we're working on. So that's probably one of the biggest pluses of uh, coming to the dark side of becoming a broker um, is that you have quite a varied day. No, yeah, well, uh, not having worked as a broker, I can't really comment on that too much, but although I, I don't like for variety in my my days anyway. No. That being said, uh, that that, be, that being said, uh, it does sound like uh, like there's a lot going on and uh, yeah, you you probably doesn't, don't have two days that look the same. So uh, that, that's probably a good selling point for, for potential employees uh, when when you're looking to hire and which I guess we'll get on to um, at some point uh, shortly the um, when you're placing the debt for the anaerobic digestion is that it, it, who what type of lenders are you placing that with are there it, presumably pre presumably the 
the pool of lenders that you would approach for residential development uh, and I, I as Avemore won't be a, a a lender for anaerobic digestion uh anaerobic digestion plant is the pool of lenders similar to the development finance or is it completely different or are there is there a little bit of overlap with certain you know with certain names uh i'd say in the main it's quite different because yeah. unless you're going to like a high street bank uh, most of the development lenders as you know they focus on that development space or maybe property investment like buy to let and things like that they tend to get into the, the more esoteric stuff um, but it would tend to be either a very large bank or it will be potentially a pension fund um, so we'll be talking to a few of those and then i will also be talking to some specialist funds that perhaps actually invest in ad or renewables and then from that conversation they may also lend into that space as well so there's a few different avenues that will go down um, and we'll see where we get to yeah and presumably you know you've i mean you've obviously got the, some the benefit of some experience in, in ad but when you're approaching a relatively new or less well-trodden sector like um like funding you know the, the development of, a, of ad assets um ad just for everyone's benefits it's anaerobic digestion but you know just just reminding everyone again um what's your process for for working out who's in the market i mean you you, you said obviously you, you you talk to people who are investing in the space but uh, and seeing who if they will lend into it but presumably let's say it's not anaerobic digestion it's something else what's the process when you've got to learn a new a new line uh like when you started doing the business finance for example what was that what was it like to try and establish who was who was in the market and whose appetite was what you know if you had to start from you know if you had to start from zero what does that look like as a as a broker uh, I think it's a case of picking up the phone and, and talking to your contacts, called, talking to professionals. You know, lawyers are a pretty good source of knowledge of who's out there funding because they're usually doing um, you know, the legal work or something like that. Um, but often it comes from you know, your knowledge base and, and your own contact. So you know, having been a lender for so long and then subsequently now a broker for quite a while, you know, we know a lot of the lenders and people within them. And it's just a case of picking up the phone, in my opinion. Um, I'm never shy of like delving into a new space because you, know, you learn a bit about it. But you also learn lenders that are in that space as well. And we did something similar on supported living um, you know, a couple of years ago. We, we were approached by someone who's doing uh, children's homes. You know, it's not something that I'd funded myself previously um, as a lender or as a broker. So we picked up the phone and started talking to people. And you know, now we've done numerous uh, supported living, assisted living, things like that, because it's quite a specialist space. Um, yeah, and I think that's just what you've got to do. You've got to go and learn about the space. You've got to learn about who's in that space. And then you've got to talk to them and learn about the funding. Uh, we had one a couple of years ago, which was a, a Sikh temple. You know, it's effectively, it's a charity. Um, so you've got to go to particular charitable banks and stuff like that. So again, learning about the congregation and how they, they collect their money and stuff like that. So what we do as a team is we will talk to the client and have a quite a lengthy meeting and understand their business. Um, and then once you've got that knowledge of their business, we'll then go and talk to lenders in that space and see where we get to. It can be time consuming, but it can be beneficial. 
you know, at the end of the day, if you can help that one client, that's great. You know, obviously that's the, the target at first. But once you've done that first specialist thing and you shout about it on socials or podcasts or wherever it might be, you know, people will get to know actually these guys do some pretty specialist stuff and they'll come to you. So that's that's really the challenge. Do you, do you find um, let, other lenders are quite uh, well, lenders can be quite helpful in terms of making referrals? I mean, it, certainly from my from, from my perspective, if someone approaches me about a deal that I can't do, I'll typically try to refer them on to a lender that maybe I think is more active in that space. Um, and then second arm to that question is, do you ever do you ever find other brokers willing to collaborate with you when you have a, a more esoteric requirement? Uh, you know, like like the like the Seek Temple or like the like, like the supported living, for example. Yeah, I think yeah. In the main, all the lenders that we talk to, we have a good relationship with. And you know, I know if I picked up the phone to you and just asked you a question, even if it's not one for either more, you'd probably try to point, point me in the right direction. You know, it's much appreciated. And I think it's what goes around comes around. You know, people remember that kind of approach, and then they'll come back to you for the stuff that does suit. Um, yeah, we have very good relationships with lenders. So often, you know, we speak to them about stuff and they'll refer us. And often we get referrals from banks where they can't place something. Um, and they say, well, go and speak to Dean, or go and speak to the team at Orium, and we'll be able to uh, help you out. Um, and then I think with, you know, other brokers, that I think some brokers aren't that approachable, unfortunately, but we have a quite a good relationship with quite a few brokers who actually we do collaborate with. Uh, particularly when we're doing equity funding. You know, we've done quite a lot of equity funding for property developers. Some some brokers come to us and say, look, you know, this client needs equity. I don't know who to go to. Could we work on it together? And we have done that on numerous occasions. We did it when uh, COVID hit and we were doing Siebel's loans for property developers refinancing their finished stock. And I had two or three brokers that came to me and said, look, it's just not their bag. They don't know what they're doing with it. <clears throat> so we collaborated and did that. So... We're very open to collaboration with the right people. Um, and I think, you know, in the main, the, the market is generally quite helpful. If you're if you're known in that space and you've got a good relationship, I, I always treat it as healthy competition, you know, friendly competition. Um, and yeah, I can name quite a few other brokers that we get on really well with. So there, there can be a lot of collaboration in that space. Yeah, I think um, I think Jordan McBride's episode uh, from back in the summer, I think he mentioned that him and Joe have done. Uh, Joe, who who works for you or works with you, uh, have collaborated a few times uh, on a yeah. couple of bits and pieces. So, um, yeah, it's it's always good to hear it, it. Good to hear and good to see. Um, and certainly, you know, the collaboration between lenders in the specialist finance arena um, and also lenders lenders and brokers as well. Um, it's not uncommon for brokers to pick up the phone to me, uh, for example, and say, do you know who's active or who would do this or who would do that? Knowing it's probably not a deal for us. And yeah, well, it it comes it, it comes quite naturally to us um, because ultimately, you know, we're a, it's a small market and you're always looking to help people out. Um, because, yeah, like you said, what goes around comes around in terms of um, in terms of your in terms of your team more generally. Um, do you ever get us particularly for less experienced people do you ever get a sort of a fear of picking up the phone uh you know especially when you've got sort of a fact find for one of these more esoteric more esoteric requirements do you ever fear get find people with a bit of a fear factor about picking up the phone and a bit less willing to uh, to put themselves out there uh particularly particularly with younger staff where you know they're, they're maybe a bit more comfortable on the whatsapp or the chat 
uh, that kind of thing. What is that something you've seen or you experienced a lot recently? Yeah, it makes me sound old, but I think it's a generational thing. Um, and actually, we were talking about it in the office only last week that uh, too many in every sector just send emails and wait for a reply and things like that. And you know, actually, I implore all my team really to pick up the phone, talk to clients, talk to lenders, build a relationship, get to know them, you know, understand which football team they support, things like that it can be helpful sometimes. And um, now I don't think there's enough of that these days. Uh, and that's why I've got, you know, grey hair and I, I'm a great believer in picking up the phone. But perhaps some of my mid-20s, you know, staff here, they're not used to that. You know, they, they send emails, they send WhatsApps and things like that. And I think that WhatsApp has become such a widely accepted form of communication now. It's actually often used more than email, but it's very dangerous in some respects because there's no record really of that conversation apart from if you've got messages and stuff like that. Um, <clears throat> it could be edited after the effects and stuff like that. So I do think it's better to use emails when it needs to be noted, but you know, by all means, I always think it's the best way to pick up the phone and have a chat. And when you talk, I mean, it's interesting hearing you say that because obviously we've had uh, a number of your peers come on and it's just, I asked the question just no, almost knowing the answer in advance, but it's always, it's always interesting to hear it as a sort of late millennial, uh, it, I say late millennial, it's pretty early, very early millennial uh, being born in uh, 81. Um, the, you know, because I think if you're sort of, of, you're my age, Dean, you know, we're sort of, we sort of straddle between the two, don't we? we straddle between the sort of the, the, the old sort of more old generation and 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 the and the younger generation and obviously we, we've got kids of a similar age now as well and and, and that's something and, and that's something even even more interesting uh some, some more even more interesting challenges that will present themselves uh even further well I'm, I'm hearing i don't know and i don't know if you hear see this from any of your kids or your kids friends but my uh i'm, I'm hearing stories now where kids are kids are together they're playing they're playing video games together in this in their house uh on a play date and then one kid says to the other um do you want to go home and then actually have they uh, and and do you want to go home and pl we'll play each other online and they're almost more comfortable talking to each other on the game through a headset than in person face to face yeah it's, it, it's really wild when i when you hear these stories and you're like wow is that is that actually how it, it's going to work with them um and i certainly see it with my own you know with my uh, my all three of my children now they're they're all they're all gaming whilst also chatting to their friends, not with strangers, thankfully, but chatting with their friends online. Um, and you think, wow, how is that going to translate? How does that translate in a business setting? It's going to be very interesting to see how they develop, uh, what's, what communication skills they develop as a consequence of that. But it, just just going back to reaching out to, to potential uh, potential lenders, um, in in that context, or, or potential investors, I suppose, because lenders are ultimately investing in projects, albeit with a through a slightly different mechanism. Certainly, when I had have gone through uh, fundraising um, th th fundraising exercises, um, if you're barking up the wrong tree, you can sometimes get a slightly unpleasant uh, unpleasant response. But but in the main, um, you know, if if you're barking up the right tree, people tend to be incredibly welcoming and incredibly uh, happy to help and try and try and do business um how, how do you get that how do you get that message across to the team uh, so the people you work with and how, how did you learn that yourself so that you you were able to be confident to pick up the phone to to people that you might be able to to get funds from 
Um, I guess it goes back to my lending days. But, you know, when I was a lender and even in the early days of Abbey National, you know, we, we had to be on the phone all the time to clients, to, to customers, to brokers. And, and you just get into the, the habit of, you know, striking up conversations, being able to engage, being able to look at different points in the conversation that you can pick up on and things like that. So that just comes with practice. Um, and I think that the way that we do it as a team, you know, we we do sort of ask our team to you know, attend the office. You know, we're not one of the uh, hybrid working businesses or two days a week in the office, things like that, which perhaps, you know, at Avonmore you probably had to embrace given you're a London-based lender and, you know, not everyone wants to come into the office every day. But I think in the main, our team wants to come to the office because they actually pick up from other people in the office on the phone and stuff like that. So I do sort of advise my team to pick up the phone, have a conversation, because then other members, younger members in the team, maybe slightly more junior members will actually hear that. They'll hear that conversation. Sometimes we'll ask the brokers to have other new brokers or the relationship managers join the calls or the teams meetings and just listen in and you know, understand more about it because I think it's really helpful for their growth and their knowledge to be able to do that and I think that's probably one of the challenges that maybe the newer generation have got now certainly since COVID because when you are working remotely you know two three four days a week whatever it may be they perhaps don't have that kind of support from their team you know, and as supportive as a, an employer can be in that space uh, and reaching out to, you know, their team and helping them and giving them training. In my opinion, there's nothing better than learning on the job, being involved in that team conversation, hearing what other people do or how they've handled the situation. So it'd be interesting to see how the next 10 years goes, you know, where more and more people do work remotely and see, see how their learning journey goes and whether or not people actually still enjoy working remotely three or four days a week or if people start to ask to come back into the office more often. I don't know. It'll be interesting to see. I think I think the return to the office thing and from an Avonmore perspective, I think the team's in the office now four days a week. So it's, you know, we're very much back to almost back to normal, whatever that looks like. I think I think office working versus hybrid working as a general rule, I think it's more effective in some industries than others. I think that in a in a in an industry, I think in a specialist finance in business, whether that's a brokerage or whether it's a lender, um, I think it's more important as a broker, I would imagine, than as a lender. But I still think it's pretty damn important as a lender too. Um, you want to have that sharing and dissemination of information. Um, you, you know, I guess it's particularly as a broker, you know, if you've got a case that's um, if you've got if you've got a particular case and you need a certain type of finance, you know, like you say, it might be equity, might be might be senior, might be mes, whatever. Um, if someone has if someone's working on that kind of case and they've got someone next to them and they hear them on the phone going, I, I need this, I need that. Your colleague might sit, might be, go, well, have you tried this person? You tried that person or yeah. this firm or that firm? Because they they might have experienced that, might have the intel that another colleague might not have. And they wouldn't have that conversation. They wouldn't be able to have that conversation. That wouldn't spark up if they were both sat at home making that, those phone calls from a home office or from the kitchen table. Um, and being sat next to each other, that sharing of information is incredibly valuable. Um, and so that's why I think it's I think it is essential. Within a lender, I think that the share, you know, that it's probably a slightly less slightly less essential 
still important, but slightly mm -hmm. less essential. Sometimes it can be just around from a technical perspective. You uh, let's say an underwriter runs into a, a an underwriter runs into a, a technical problem. Um, now they can schedule a Teams call with their head of department to talk through how to solve that, or the team the, the head of department could be sat next to them, and whilst they're encountering that, they can try and work through that in real time. Um, so you know you've, you've got efficiency, but you've also got a sales team uh, or you know originators of the sales team, you've got the treasury team, you've got the funding team. You have if you, if everyone sat five meters less than five meters away from each other, um, something that could be a problem that could take weeks to resolve could be resolved in a matter of hours because you've got people sat next to each other sharing that information. So um, it, you know you you certainly got support from me. You certainly got support from me uh, as far as that's concerned. The I suppose the other thing is as a broker and, and as, as a lender, occasionally you have to give people bad news or news that uh, new, or news that is different to what they were hoping or expecting. Um, how 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 do you go about coaching your team, your staff to to sort of deliver the deliver bad news? And are there are there any do's and don'ts when you're doing it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's a difficult one because uh, as a broker, you'd like to be can help everyone, um, but it's just not true. And I think, um, you know, certainly something that we've talked about is, you know, being honest with people from the outset, being realistic with people from the outset and setting the expectations. Because I think there's, there's a danger that if you don't do that, then people automatically assume that you're going to get the funding um, and it's not always possible. Uh, no matter how hard you try, you know, someone might have too much of a blemish on their record. Someone may not have a good enough deal. You know, so we spend quite a bit of time at the outset looking at, you know, let's say it's a development. We'll look at the profitability, the profit on costs after finance. We'll look at the contingencies they've got in there. We'll look at the bill costs and hopefully you know, it'll be realistic and things like that to make sure that it's a deal that we think we can place rather than spending all the time that we do writing up a presentation, sending it out to lenders, getting a lot of negative responses, sending it to more lenders and going round and round the houses. And I'm not really getting anywhere. Now, don't, don't take that to be a negative. We're not negative about cases, we're just realistic. And by spending that time doing that upfront work, I think that does defray a lot of the negative conversations and defrays, you know, hopefully the need for bad news. But, you know, occasionally there are points when it's bad news. Uh, you know, we've had it where people have pulled out at the last minute, whether that be a lender or an investor and things like that, mostly down to, you know, market issues like the Brexit vote that happened. But I remember lenders pulled out, car blanche on numerous deals at that time. Uh, COVID, first lockdown, we had numerous deals, you know, pulled, pulled out on us. So, at the end of the day, it's about being empathetic to the client, you know, and and you know, sort of assuring them uh, that you're working hard to solve that issue. Um, and if it really can't be solved, then being honest with them as to why it can't be solved, and then hopefully moving on from that. And sometimes clients have had to walk away from deals because it's just not good enough, or you know, they can't get the funding for it. And ultimately, that's not our fault. But we do take a lot of that on board because, as a broker, you are the messenger between the funder and the client. And often, it's shoot the messenger when bad news comes. So yeah, we are very careful. I mean, do's and don'ts. I guess do be realistic. Do be honest. You know. Do communicate as well, even if you're not getting anywhere with something, you know, keep talking to the clients, 
And that works both ways. That can be for lenders or brokers. You know, keep communicating with the customer ultimately to assure them that you are trying everything you can. Ultimately, if you have to then go back and give them bad news, it's not a shock. You know, it's it's been communicated throughout that there are hurdles and you can't get over them, maybe. So I would say that's the key to do those things. And, and I suppose the don'ts are, you know, don't promise the earth. You know, don't promise that you'll definitely get them funding or you'll give them funding if you're a lender, if you if you're really not sure about it, you know. Um get don't don't try and do it too quickly as well. You know, sometimes we say to you know all of our team, you've got to make sure you get all the information and answer as many of the lenders' questions as possible at the outset. Because I think that gives them more confidence in funding it and ultimately hopefully you get better terms or quicker terms. So if you rush and you know there is a tendency to do that if you're if you've got a lot on, then you miss things and then you just end up spending more time on it by answering numerous questions. So we we do try to uh, collate a proper pack of information, do a proper presentation for funders, and then hopefully do a, a great job for the client from there on. Yeah, you, you effectively mitigate the, the need or minimize the need to have difficult conversations with with lenders by virtue of the fact by virtue of the upfront work that you do uh which i think is a a, a smart way to approach it um if we were to talk about property development and property developers particularly and i know that we've got a lot of aspirant property developer uh listeners or people who want to become property developers uh and we've also had a, a good handful of of developers come on uh, come on the podcast as well I said listeners also viewers so if you're if you're on YouTube as well thank you for thank you for for keeping that going too um what do you think sets apart the successful developers from the the developers who who aren't so successful especially in light of the fact that you've got a number of clients who who repeat clients who are you know developing sometimes up to hundreds of units a year um you know what the ones that are successful why are they successful and the ones that fail why do they fail um, I think the successful ones are the ones that are willing to take a risk, but it's a calculated risk. Um, and what I mean by that is that, yeah, I think every development site will usually have a challenge of sorts. It might be in the construction, could be in the ground, could be the placement of it and what's around it, you know, and saleability thereafter. So, you know, there's a challenge and there's a, there's a you know, a risk. But is it is it a calculated risk? And is it something that they feel is um, justified and something they can get over? I think where developers go wrong is that there's almost like a, a desperation to find a site. Uh, they squeeze all their margins. They, they, they're too bullish on the GDV uh, estimates. They squeeze down their bill costs, which obviously has been quite disastrous the last sort of 18 months or so, you know, and they're doing that. And effectively, they're only doing that so they can try and win the site, pay more for it. And you know, some of my clients say to us, you make your profit on the way into a deal, not on the way out of a deal. And, and effectively, what you pay for a site really dictates how much profit you're going to make. So if people overpay for the site by squeezing down their costs and then squeezing up the GDV to try and make them more competitive to win the site, then invariably they're the ones that encounter issues when something does go wrong, when one of those challenges hits them and it costs them more to build or perhaps the sales market, as we've seen last year, isn't as bullish. Um, they're the ones that struggle, you know. Um, and what happens invariably is that 
when you get into development, you're quite highly leveraged most of the time because you've only got a finite resource of equity. Um, and if you're too highly leveraged and you've taken risks such as that, then you're going to encounter difficulties. And they tend to be the ones, in my opinion, that you know, fall over. Um, and that's the end of their development journey. Um, you know, the, the more established developers are realistic with their costs. You know, they look at the sites in massive amounts of detail in terms of the saleability. Um, and when it comes to selling those units, you know, they, they've made sure that there's not a sewage treatment plant nearby that smells on a summer's day when someone's coming to view the properties and things like that. You know, they, they've really done their DD. And they know that it's, it's going to get there or thereabouts, you know, in terms of the sales. So I think you know you have to take a risk as a as a developer, but you, it should be a calculated risk. Yeah. Okay. I mean that 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 sounds like it. That 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 makes a that makes a lot of sense. Um, and, and in terms of you know in in terms of um the equity piece, you know, obviously you help developers get equity, um, as well as as well as debt, um. Can you just talk through the difference in approach that you have to take when you're approaching someone to provide equity for a for a uh, for a developer compared to when they, you might be providing uh, approaching someone about providing the senior debt? Um, presumably, it, it can be more more challenging to get equity because of because it's a higher risk piece of capital. How how do you uh, you know how how do you how how do you go about presenting that client to a, an equity provider compared to to a debt provider? Um, I think it is pretty similar in our approach in the sense that even when we're presenting it for lending, we do, you know, a presentation about the client, who they are, you know, where the scheme is, what it is and so forth. But I think, you know, probably the main difference is, you know, really drilling down on the client's track record because the deal is the deal, you know, but yeah. at the same time, a lot of our equity funders, it could be the best deal in the world, but if they don't believe in the developer, i.e. their JV partner in most cases, to be able to deliver that scheme on time, on budget, and sell it for a good profit, then they just won't do the deal because in their opinion, you know, there's other deals out there. And you know, certainly at the moment, equity providers are inundated with opportunities and they're really cherry picking. So we do try to drill down on the developer's track record and um their approach to things and how good their team is in terms of nailing down the bill costs and so forth and making sure that they're absolutely correct because that will give the equity provider confidence that their profit share is protected. Now, uh, no, no disrespect to any senior lender, but they only really care uh, that enough houses sell to repay their debt. Yeah, So if they're lending 60% of the GDP, they've only got to sell six houses out of 10 before they get the money back in their opinion. Even if the sales figures aren't quite there and it costs a bit more, okay, it's seven houses, but it's not all 10. Equity providers only share the profit or their focus is really on 10 house sales and what they're getting after the bank. And then, like you said, that's the high risk element of it. So we have to really give them confidence that it's the right partner and it's the right developer that they're going into the deal with. And often equity providers, they, they want to do deal after deal with the same people, really. So it's about what's their pipeline what else have they got you know, coming up? What have they got in planning? Things like that to give them an idea of what's what's coming down the track after this deal. Because you know, with lenders, you know, again, they they like to lend to repeat borrowers. Don't get me wrong, but 
um, for equity providers, I feel like it's even more important for them to, because they don't want to keep reinventing the wheel. They're not a massive marketing machine going out there shouting about what they do typically. They're quite under the radar. And when we bring them opportunities, they like to know that we've underwritten it and looked at it properly before it goes to them. And that's why, you know, a couple of our equity funders are exclusive to us because they know my background as a lender, as an equity funder. They know that we look at things properly. They know that we're not just, you know, trying around to try and get a deal through. We're actually looking at deals properly before it goes to them. And we look at, does it tickle the boxes for them? You know, do they, do they only want to fund houses? And they only want to do up to 10 houses at a time. We're not sending them 30 houses or 30 apartments, you know, things like that. So we do look at it quite carefully and who we send it to or what they actually want as well. Yeah, uh, I mean, th th that all makes sense. And to be honest with you, knowing how you approach deals, I'm not surprised that you you find yourself in that position. Because if I think if I put a, if I think with a sort of lens or think with a equity funder hat on, um, you know, and again, as someone who acquires commercial property assets with family equity or family capital, um, I'm extremely selective about the about the deals that I look at because I have a particular type of deal that I want to buy as a commercial investor. Um, and by the same token, I therefore need to be very selective about uh, about which agents I work with, because if I'm taking if I take deals, if I take deals from everyone, um, I'll be I'll be spending a lot of time running around looking at lots of deals that don't necessarily work for me. And I'm and I'm also going to have. Uh, I'm not nothing's going to be pre vetted because if I'm accepting intros from every agent under the sun. By the same token, no one's ever going to take me seriously because if they if they send me a deal that I've already seen four times, they're like, well, he, he's obviously too well covered. There's no point sending him any more deals or actually spending making any effort with this person because ultimately um, they're spread too thin. So I have a, a, a very particular actually that I'll only accept introductions from about four uh, four agents. Um, of which probably only one or two will send deals to me with any degree of uh, regularity. But it does mean on the flip side that when I want to pursue something because they know that I'm serious and because they know that I'm not accepting introductions from every Tom, Dick and Harry, they will they, I will get really good service from them as a consequence. So I sort of there's some really good parallels, interesting parallels between what you're doing with these equity providers and and the, what I experience as I suppose a commercial investor operating in a, in a similar way in a slightly slightly different field um when you're um obviously you're very you you're starting to be quite selective about um the, the people you work with and i suppose particularly the the people with uh, people on the equity side what would you say are red flags for you when it comes to taking on new clients like what 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 gets the alarm bells ringing as far as you're concerned um, we at the outset we always ask for exclusivity, um, and if someone's not willing to give you exclusivity, then it's wasting our time. It's wasting other brokers' time. So we don't tend to get into that. Uh, we prefer to be uh, exclusive, at least for a period of time, to give us the opportunity to really waste our time and resources. You know, in actually trying to find a solution. You know, we don't want that to be a waste of time. I think that. Um, we always ask a lot of questions at the outset. 
And if the, the answers are very forthcoming um, and very open, that, that is helpful. You know, we don't want someone that doesn't really treat us with trust um, or as part of their team. You know, we always say we are part of your team. We're trying to get funding for you. So tell us everything, you know, what's and all, uh, and we'll deal with it accordingly. Because uh, our approach to any sort of lending requirement is to talk to the lenders and tell them everything about it, but also justify why it's acceptable. So, you know, we want to understand all that. Um, and then I guess, yeah, if they've had a fair amount of failed businesses in the past, um, yeah, there are reasons why some people run into difficulties, but if it's happening again and again, and it's more recent, then part of me feels, uh, how can we you know, honestly recommend them to the lenders that we're talking to? Because you know, they've got that sort of track record, then it's probably not something that they're going to stop anytime soon. But if it's, you know, if I've, I've got funding for people before who previously have been bankrupt, so they've had CBAs and stuff like that, but there's been justified reason for it. Um, and things happen, you know, and that's, as we said earlier, development particularly is a risky business. Um, so we've, we've had 2008, which was horrendous for any developer, let alone, you know, ones that are, are more established. Um, so I do think that um, we do look at people's track record, we look at how they behave with us. And if we get, you know, quite a few red flags at the outset, then we just won't deal with them. So that's, that's probably the best way to set the ties at that point. Yeah, I, I guess, you know, you are, you know, you, you're the biggest service that you're offering really is your time, right? There's the, that's the one commodity that you're, you're able to give to, you're, you're able to give, give to clients aside from maybe the, the benefit of your knowledge and some, maybe some uh, technological solutions as, as you sort of build, start to build them out. Um, but ultimately, time is the, the number one resource that you're giving up when you're when you're doing this work. And it's it's very it's a very limited resource, as we all know. There's only so much of it and, and it doesn't we can't get it back. Um, so I guess if you're dealing with someone that you don't think is credible or you think is, you know, is potentially untrustworthy or is going to waste your time, then understandably, yeah, I could understand why you wouldn't want to take them on as a client. And um yeah, because uh, because ultimately that's that's time you could be spent better looking after other clients as well. And I suppose the other other side to it too, Dean, is the is the one around credibility, which is that um, you know broker broker credit brokers do need some degree of credibility with the lenders or funders that they work with. Um, now, now I think in the past ten years, I think there's probably been very lenders have had to be very forgiving. Of of brokers' uh, approaches, it's probably that brokers have had the whip hand. But there are, you know, there are certain brokers that take have taken things too far, and they end up sort of ending up on sort of uh, unofficial blacklists within a number of lenders, or at least I'm aware of that. So I, I suppose the other aspect is is too making sure that you protect and retain your credibility with lenders, because ultimately, as a it's a selling point for you with a client that you have that credibility with a lender where. If something's on the margins, whether that's pricing, whether it's leverage, whether it's some other specific deal term, you're going to be more likely to be able to push that lender over the line because of your relationship with the lender, but also the credibility that you have. Whereas if you don't have any credibility with a lender, um, you're not going to be able to exercise any of that sort of uh, exercise any of that sort of negotiating leverage um, as a consequence. Yeah, I so, think agree more. I think you know when I first became a broker about eight years ago, I uh, set up the intention of being 
one of the best brokers in the market, you know, and wanted us to do things in the right way. And I think that it's absolutely key to have that credibility. Yeah, it's, it's weird to think that, you know, we in the specialist broking world deal with multi-million pound transactions and it's unregulated. So pretty much anyone can do it as a broker, um, which is shocking to say the least, really, because there are unfortunately some that don't know what they're doing and they don't give the clients the best service. And often not doing it in the best interest of the client you know so we're very different to that you know we want to give them the best service and when i say them i mean the clients obviously um but we also want to give lenders the the uh the best chance of giving you know the best terms to the best clients and you know i think the more that we work together as a partnership lenders and brokers and clients then the better that relationship will be and more you'll do together going forward so I'm a great believer that we've got to keep our credibility high. We've got to give the best service to our clients, but we've also you know, got to treat lenders in the right way as well. And going back to your kind of bad news bit, you know, when when we get uh, bad news given to us, we always have to handle it in the right way, in a professional manner with that lender. We might not always agree with their decision. Uh, we might try and combat that decision and, and see if we can come up with a solution. But uh, if you can't, you've got to, You've got to take it uh, and you've got to go elsewhere and, and place it somewhere else and move on. Don't, I always say to my team, you can't throw your tools at the pram. You can't, you can't treat a lender in a bad way, a negative way, because, you know, next week you might need them again. So, you know, you've got to, you've got to handle it well and, and work together going forward. And I think that does bode us, you know, bode well for us because there have been times when it's been on that edge, maybe deals haven't quite worked or whatever. And we've come up with a solution between us that's worked. And I can think of one in particular you and I talked about, you know, during I, COVID. I, um, I, I, you know, it's really funny. I was th- just thinking exactly that. Yeah, that we 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 kind of got there, didn't we? It's, uh, I I, th- I think I, I think what was interesting is that um, I, I you know my experience there was I I couldn't fob you off either. I couldn't get you know because you'd work because of your experience as a lender. You, you're not your understanding of how how lending works meant that you know you you held me you kept me very honest in that situation um and um but the the good news is we 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 found a solution for the client and we made it work um you know in an ideal world we wouldn't have had to have those those conversations but covid that that initial period of covid was uh was new for everyone wasn't it and, and it, just took, it took it took some working around um but yeah, I thought I thought that was a I thought that was a, a good example uh, a good example. But more importantly, Dean, though, the if we didn't hold you in such high regard, if we didn't if your if our relationship with you didn't matter as much to us as it did, um, you, you know, the outcome for the client might have ended up very di- might have en- might have ended up different. And it's not to say that you know clients aren't treated equally or or, or anything like that or aren't treated equally fairly, but you know we're all human beings and at the end of the day you are going to probably when things are difficult to do when you don't have to do something um you're more inclined to do something that you're less comfortable doing for someone that you like and respect on the lending side than for someone that you don't have as much like and respect for and so you know to speak to your character and to speak to you as an individual um the esteem that we held you in meant that we had to find everything that we that we needed to do to find that deal to find a way to make that deal work uh, when the rest of the market wouldn't have done it to the extent that I put my own actual money into that deal um, rather than our institutional money into it. So um, because it was more difficult to do at that time. So, yeah, I, I think it's I think it speaks speaks volumes to that. 
Oh, um, I do, do appreciate that. Definitely. Um, just taking a different taking a different attack, and then we can maybe just sort of drill into into kind of how how we got here. Um, because yeah, I, I, it's sometimes nice to go on a bit of a meander and talk about uh, talk about themes rather than stories. But people like stories as well, so we can give people the story in the second half of the of the show. Um, one of the things that you've you've done quite well or quite successfully recently is is your work with um, relatively inexperienced developer clients. Um, how do you approach how do you how do you approach selling newer developer clients uh, to lenders and if someone's listening to this podcast today or watching this podcast today um, and they're looking to get into property development, um, what what tips would you give them uh, to help them on their journey? Uh, well, we, we don't mind helping newer developers at all. I think that, in my view, little acorns turn into something much bigger. And um, I think it's how you handle them that really can dictate whether or not they are successful sometimes. So we, we do quite a bit of upfront work with newer developers in terms of putting together their story, you know, helping them put together their track record, because often it's not a development track record, but it's, it's a property CV. It's, it's about what they've done in property, what's been their employment and so forth. Um, we help them a lot with the, you know, the appraisal basis, you know, and really drilling down on getting their numbers correct from the outset, making sure that they've got everything in there that they need to have in there in terms of the costs. So make sure they've got build warranties, insurances, works in there. Um, so they really know what profitability of the scheme is. So we do a lot of that. Um, and then it's you know, really, one of a better word, holding hands with them all the way through to make sure that it gets to where they need to be because there is that inexperience. They've never, um really trodden that path before they don't always know what to expect in the process um and you know we help them every step of the way you know we review their valuation reports we review the pms reports with them we go through all of that and you know, from a legal perspective that's often a minefield you know we go through the facility letters with them and point out the main things and often they they come to the table with a lawyer that they've used for their buy to lets and stuff like that and i always say don't use them, you know, find a, a lawyer that's got development track record that knows how to deal with development lenders. It's a very different world. So we help them with their power team. We help them with architects, you know, lawyers, structural engineers, all sorts of things, really. That's, you know, we don't earn any money out of that. That's not the intention. It's about helping them to form a real solid team and a real solid track record to be able to deliver that project after we've got the funding because we want it to be a success. We want them to you know, complete that development, sell it out, move on to the next one. You know, we want to be doing multiple deals to them uh, and, and any help that we can give on that, we will do. Um, so we we do present at certain uh, at a group, you know, that's helping developers and we talk to them about the finance, about the process and things like that. Um, and we go into great detail on that side of things. So I think that's really important for developers um, that are getting into it. Because it, yeah, it's too many people think it's too easy, and it's actually not. You know, the funding is hard. Uh, getting the funding is hard. Then actually doing the development is hard. So, you know, we we try to give them all the tools that we can, and by doing so, I think that 
again sort of breeds loyalty and they appreciate that we go above and beyond and then they stick with us and that's the intention really to grow a nice relationship that grows and grows and now i've got one client the first deal i did for them was a little pd conversion into four flats you know the most recent one we did was uh, 79 flats so you know they do grow and they, that's one success story but you know there's there's many more that we we help so yeah the, the particular group that we helped we helped with the mentoring and so forth last year we did 17 deals with them through different mentees that went through that um and they're they're people that are starting out on their journey so now, there is probably sometimes more work in that than if you go to a client that's got an FD and they build 100 houses a year, they're a bit better set up. But I always take a view that those smaller guys are going to get to that one day. So, you know, the work that we put in now will be beneficial in the future. Yeah, I suppose the other thing is the the, the, the firm with the FD is the FD's probably got multiple relationships with people just like yourself or direct relationships with lenders as well. So, um, yeah, there, there's there's good business logic to 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 trying to work with these people at an early stage and frankly you know Avonmore's made a, a a lot of success from working with early stage developers people who are early in their journey and uh we, i guess with the intention that we'll you know they'll be with us for as long as that as for as long as we're the best option for them as long as we deliver the right things for them i suppose one of the de one of the challenges with uh with less experienced developers is um f fundamentally is you know that they tend to work on smaller schemes they tend to have uh they tend to have less equity or less cash to put into deals um which obviously is important has been important recently when uh, with bill costs inflation being what it's been um you know they tend to be as you said they tend to be worse advised um you know the the you know the lawyer is the uncle above a fried chicken shop you know um I, I I mean I, I'm it's it's kind of not a serious comment but it you know we all know we all know the type of lawyer that we're talking about mm -hmm. um so as a consequence they are not sufficiently experienced or qualified to handle the inquiries that come through from the the lender solicitor so the flip side is um when they're getting paid the same as a residential conveyance the you know the 750 quid or the thousand pounds um you know when they get that CPSEs or the you know the, they won't have to provide replies to inquiries and they're getting paid the same for that as they are for, um, you know, for for a for a buy to let or for the um, for the resi uh, for, for resi purchase. The, the development inquiry goes down the list of priorities because it's too hard for them to do, and it doesn't pay. It's not paying them enough to do it. Yeah. Um, and that and that's one of the biggest experiences that we've seen for why deals fall down and don't go anywhere. Um, so so as a consequence, making sure that they've got. I mean, you're smart in the sense that you've got. Not only if you are you more likely to get the first deal uh, to get the multiple the, the second and third and fourth deal over the line, you're going to get the first deal over the line as well, uh, which is in my experience often is where the the, the difficulty lies, um, and developers end up getting frustrated because they're just not uh, they're not geared up to deal with proper de uh, development lenders um, in in that in, in that environment and to be able to engage in the right way. So um, yeah, I think it's great it's it's great to to see that you're doing it. I mean, if you were to sum up. If you were to say though the one area where there's one thing one bit of advice you were to give a relative newbie developer um in terms of their in terms of their journey of the things that you've seen over the years where you think seen things go wrong or go right what's the what number one thing bit of advice that you would give to them above all others um probably to get a good team and when i say a team i don't just mean 
the lawyer. That is probably the most fundamental part. But also, if you're not doing your own construction and you're using a contractor, get a good surveyor, quantity surveyor or something like that to work on your behalf to really nail down that contract, make sure everything is in there, um, you know, make sure it's specified correctly. Because I've seen so many developers use third-party contractors and the costs have just spiraled because they haven't really nailed down all of the employer's requirements correctly and they end up you know, spending a lot more money than they originally budgeted and spending more money means a lot less profit. So. It can be a false economy not having a good team, not employing a good team or trying to get the cheapest team um, because ultimately you'll end up losing much more than that cost um, you know, in due course because you're either badly advised or you weren't advised at all. Um, and I think that's the key for me is to get a really good solid team around you. Yeah, I mean, I, I can think actually of a mutual client of ours where the, the developer and the contractor had quite a big falling out when the project was actually quite advanced. And, um, you know, put, I think it put everyone in quite an awkward position and it actually surprised me that it ended up, it, it ended up that way. But I felt, I felt on balance, it was something that the, the developer just needed to learn from because they were, they ultimately, they, if they'd spent the money on having a, a good QS or a good employer's agent to look after them and to put, go into bat with the, going to bat with the contractor on, I think some of the issues that, that ended up sort of breaking down that relationship and putting the developer in a difficult position when they never should have been, um, could have been avoided much earlier on. It could have been nipped in the bud. Um, unfortunately, you know, they they were just put in a position in the end by by the contractor, um, which, you know, fundamentally, fundamentally meant that they were over a barrel. And um, we as a lender, our number one priority was to get the thing finished. Um, and um, you know and that was and that was that and um you know the developer probably ended up um worse off as a result but hopefully the learning lessons from that mean that they'll you know that the next time they won't you know they they will be a bit more wary um about a bit about being turned over by by the contractor so yeah i guess we'll uh like you say the the team is team is very important in that situation yeah i think the, the challenge comes you see it often where a developer does a JV with a contractor mm. and it all starts off very rosy and it's a great relationship until it starts to go wrong and then it becomes very contractual. And it's often, I've seen it before, you know, developers walk into a room and they, say, oh, they see one pendant line and they say, oh, I wanted eight spotlights here. And they say, well, didn't price for that. That's not in the contract. Um, and that's, you know, the failing really is that kind of communication and setup at the outset. And ultimately, if it was all priced in at the start, the cost would have been much higher and the deal either wouldn't have worked or you have to negotiate a better price on the land. So this yeah. is what I was saying earlier, you know, really you've got to get your numbers right at the outset and pay the right price for the land. Otherwise, you're going to be up against it from day one. Um, so, yeah, I couldn't agree more. You know, when, when, a, when a developer works with any contractor, you know, I would always recommend getting a QS to opine on the numbers, opine on the documents, make sure there's a contract in place, make sure it's a, a sound contract. And you hope that it just sits in a drawer for the whole of the development and never comes out. But when it comes out, at least you've got something solid. So that's that's probably the biggest part that, that you focus on. Yeah. And, and I guess if you're again, if you're a if you're a developer or a landowner going to JV with a contractor, um, understanding that you know yeah you put the build in i put the land in and we split the profits it 
it sounds like a nice idea in principle, but of course, um, you know, the contract contractors aren't always, you know, that they, they don't. Uh, and I'm not speaking about any in particular uh, situation here, but contractors in that situation, you're providing them with a bad incentive um, because if you don't fix the costs, they're they're all they're ultimately going to uh, try and to inflate the build cost in that situation, um, leaving the the profit to be split at the end um, to be quite thin as far as the landowner is concerned, uh, because the, the contractor will have attempted to take as much profit out during the build. So it's another another one of the sort of JV pitfalls that we we are aware of and that um, that developers and landowners need to be conscious of uh, before entering into JVs and you know making sure that they structure them appropriately. Um, yeah, we, we sound like we're gunning for all contractors there, but we're honestly not. It's, uh, it's, we're not, we're it's not. just certain occasions we've seen that happen. So yeah, it con if you if you put the wrong incentive in front of anyone, you will see. A disproportionate number of people leaning into a leaning into a direction that isn't necessarily in all parties' interests. Um, so it, it's just you just need to make because and it, because it's human nature. So it's it's true that you do need to just design contracts and contractual arrangements such that you're not providing um, skewed incentives for for the parties that that are engaged in it. Um, I just wanted to I wanted to sort of talk about your story, Dean, because we've obviously talked a lot about um, about, you know, business specific things. But let's talk about how how we how you got here. Um, you, you mentioned Abbey National. Obviously, I know about your time in Ingenious. And here we are at, at, at Orium. Um, do you want to just talk us through how how you got here, or how, how we got to where we are now? Uh, yeah, I spent I spent uh, the first 10 years of my career working at Abbey National um, and the, the good thing about that is it, a big corporate machine with lots of different departments gives you lots of opportunity as well. So I started out uh, taking uh, applications for unsecured loans on the telephone um, and then uh, went into a full-time role there as uh, their youngest ever unsecured underwriter, um, basically applying on declined applications for credit cards, overdrafts and loans. Um, and yeah, from there, I've, I've always had a passion for property. Uh, when I was young, my favourite game was always Monopoly, so I wanted to get into property in some way. And so I was offered the opportunity to go into the specialist underwriting team there uh, on the property side. So I had to take almost a side step to go up, um, learn the ropes in the secured side, and ended up in a specialist mortgage service at Abbey, where we basically worked with a select uh, number of brokers, um, uh, key intermediary team there, and we were basically underwriting deals, which were the weird and wonderful stuff that you know none of the branches or business development units could actually deal with. Um, so it was, you know, footballers, uh, stockbroker on 100 grand, basically two million pound bonus. He wants to buy a three million pound house. He doesn't want to buy a 300,000 pound house. So, you know, we had to deal with the weird and wonderful. And, and that really gave me the opportunity to really delve into cases and underwrite them properly. Um, so I really enjoyed that, got into credit risk, uh, starting to apply on policy. And then I was uh, approached to go and join uh, Close Brothers. Uh, it's my first job uh, in the city and uh, started working in London full time then, basically working on a, a fund management team. 
um, we basically did property, anything property with a tax angle. So we had um, groundwork vehicles, EZT funds, and I worked on an inheritance tax vehicle, um, which basically did joint ventures with property developers. So I was really putting my passion into play um, and basically providing people 100% funding um, in the good old days, sort of 2006, 2007. In, in 08, the world ended and uh, lots of our developer clients handed back the keys including one that went into a mental home because um, <laughs> the pressure was so bad, um, unfortunately. And yeah, I learned a huge amount in the next two or three years because we basically became property developers overnight. Um, we had to deal with all sorts of problems, you know, anything from um, the foundations had just been poured on one side through to dealing with the sales or trying to sell things in a terrible market and dealing with the agents and design and brochures and marketing and all sorts of things. So yeah. I became a property developer overnight and did a huge amount there and, and learned so much. So that was really, really good for my career. Um, we were brought out there um, by a company called Alpha Real Capital. Um, we launched Alpha Property Lending um, because the investors didn't want to do 100% finance anymore. So we then basically launched a lender um, and did what was probably the first, if not one of the first stretch senior offerings. Doesn't sound very stretched now. We were offering 65% of GDP or 80% of the cost. <laughs> nope. So in 09, no one else was really doing that. And um, yeah, that went really well. And, and then I was approached by Ingenious. Um, they'd seen what I'd done at Alpha and Close Brothers before. They had an inheritance tax vehicle. They were doing quite a bit of renewable energy, um, going back to what we saw, talk about of AD and wind turbines and so forth. And uh, they wanted to do property. So went in there with a blank piece of paper and created a, a stretch senior development finance lender doing 75% of GDP or 90% of cost. Um, and yeah, it was basically myself and two assistants. And uh, we got the book to about 120 million in two years just doing sort of one to five million loan sizes to start with. Um, and then I was approached by a friend of mine who I'd worked with previously, um, who asked me to help himself called corporate finance brokerage. Um, and being a bit snobby, I turned it down first, so I'm not sure I want to be a broker. Um, but after about five pints, he convinced me it was the right thing to do. Um, and we set up a brokerage together under the umbrella of another uh, mortgage broker and ran that for a couple of years. My focus was development and equity raising for developers because um, that's a bit I enjoyed and also a bit I'd got most experience in. And then I just felt like it was time to row my own boat, to be honest. I had uh, set up businesses for other people in terms of lenders and subsequently a brokerage. And um, I set up Warum just shy six years ago. Uh, we're now a team of 21. Um, and yeah, it's been an amazing experience been an interesting market to work through with COVID and other things, but um, we're growing nicely and um, we're expanding our offering. As I touched on, you know, we now do business finance, so that's a very new world to me, um, but it's been, it's been nice. I like the challenge and I like the interesting part of learning about new parts of the business and growing parts of business and as well as a bit of an entrepreneurial spirit in me, that, that's the bit that I really enjoy. I mean, 20, a growth to 21 already is uh, is remarkable. I mean, there's plenty of uh, plenty of your peers that are, you know, 15, 16, 17, 18, 20 years old who who aren't who, who don't have that many people. And presumably, if you've got a team of 21, you know, you you're doing a significant amount of volume 
uh, to be able to sustain that, that number of, of maths that you have to feed, you know, across the across the wider team. Because I know that not everyone's going to be a broker or a frontline broker. A lot of people are going to be uh, support or admin um, or assistants, um, you know, junior brokers or whatever. So not everyone's going to be doing, you know, doing the do at the, at the at the coal face. So to be able to keep that side of the team going is is quite is quite something. And in terms of the team, are they are they predominantly directly employed, or, are, or is there a, a, are the number of them self-employed uh, within the team? How, what's the what's your model? Uh, on the brokerage side, we offer both options, and it really comes down to our view, but also more more uh, more importantly, the brokers' requirements and what they want. Um, so uh, we've got a real mix. Probably about half and half, to be honest. Who um, uh, employed and self-employed, and we we treat self-employed very much as part of the team. They're not left out on the limb. They come to all of our events, uh, Christmas parties, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, because we want them to fly the flag of Orium and be feel like they're part of the team. Um, so we we include them in everything really. And I think that a lot of the self-employed brokers that have joined us, they've just been so uh, refreshed by that approach. And I'm not you know, saying that no one else does that, but I, I was surprised to hear how some brokerages treat self-employed brokers. You know, there's no support there. They charge them like monthly retainers and things like that. Maybe we're a bit naive, we don't do that. You know, we, we, we only take on people that we believe in, we give them all the support and hopefully they succeed and that's what we want. Then on the employed side, you know, Quite a few of our employee brokers have grown from being relationship managers in the support function. Um, and we've given them progression. We've given them all the training, the knowledge, and they're growing into brokers. And although they're you know, more junior in their experience, in fact, actually, they know quite a bit more about development finance than most of the brokers that we get shown CVs for from recruitment agents, you know, um, because it is quite a specialist area. and. Um, takes a certain type of people to work on that and certain certain level of knowledge in my opinion so it's been good to grow from within and give them that opportunity as well i, I guess it also helps having family uh, for at least for the most part of, of the, the the business's existence having family as well as part of the as part of the team to help you uh, yeah she's she's uh moved on now to be a business development company and I think that's really her specialism, you know, yeah. and she was uh, an integral part of helping set up the business from day one. It was just myself and Elise in the office on our own. Uh, and often for that early few months, I was out on the road, you know, banging the drum about Orium, trying to drum up a bit of business and, and actually get those deals in. So she did a lot by speaking to me remotely. Um, but yeah, we've, we've got others in the team. Natasha's been here four years, Kieran over three years. Um, and we, we, we've grown a lot in the last couple of years, to be honest. And a lot of that growth has been from the business finance side. So we've got eight brokers on the business finance. We've got seven brokers on the property side. So yeah, we want to keep growing both of them now. Yeah. And in terms of in terms of the model going forwards, and certainly from the conversation I've had with a number of a number of brokers privately, and then also in the podcast, and we've had James McGregor of um, P10 Financial uh, on just before Christmas. And we were talking, uh, and that episode was released a couple of weeks ago, uh, in, in in early January, and he was saying that he's he wants to now move to an almost exclusively uh, directly employed model, um, because he he just thinks there's so many more benefits from from being uh, being structured in that way. Are you, are you going to be are you going to keep your kind of open mind about employed versus self-employed, or is there 
or, or is there a, a, a preferred bias uh, in terms of which direction you might go in? Well, I think we carry on as we are. I don't really see that it's a negative to have self-employed people. I guess um, yeah, you have to be selective about who you take on as self-employed though. You know, that's probably our key focus is we, we've been approached by people that want to join us and we've turned some of them down. And that's because they've got to fit in with the team. They've got to fit in with the ethos of the company. They are still putting your business card into the hands of people. So they've got to represent you in the right way. Um, and we only want the right people. You know, it's not always easy to do whether you're employing someone or you're taking on self-employed, to be honest. You know, it's often you only meet people for a couple of hours during the interview stage. So... Yeah, I think there's there's challenges on both sides, really, pros and cons to both sides. Um, but yeah, I think we'll carry on as we are. And there'll be some people out there that we really want to meet this year who are probably self-employed, one man, one woman bands, that they could do that infrastructure, they could do that support to help them with the growth of their business. And yeah, they can come under our brand and our umbrella and we'll give them all of that support and, you know, it frees them up to go and do more origination, find more deals, you know, and and do more business and have more money. So, you know, there's there's the probably the blinkered view that oh, I don't want to give away a share of my commission, or there's the the view where actually if I give away a small share of my commission and take on all that infrastructure, then I can do a lot more business. So it takes the the, the open mindedness on the other side as well. Presumably, there's more. Refer- if if you're moving, if you're a specialist in, say, business finance, if your clients have got property needs that you can't serve as well, or or vice versa, um, there's also additional earning opportunities that come from being part of a, a wider network. So, um, yeah, I, I see that. I see that logic. What's the? I mean, what's the future for Orium, Dean? You know, what is? What are we? Five years from now, ten years from now, what, what what's Orium doing? Um, you know, what what are your what are your aspirations? Uh, aspirations would be to continue growing the team. I don't want to be a massive team, yeah, but I do want to continue growing the business, um, more brokers to you know, help us in that journey. But also, I'd like to um, help people out by um, setting up an equity fund of some sort, um, equity or mezzanine fund, because we see a lot of deals come through us where we can get in the senior debt pretty easily, um, but actually they could do that bit more and that would help the growth of their business. And given my experience in the equity funding space um, or the higher leverage space, higher risk space, um, I think we have the wherewithal to be able to do that sort of stuff. Um, so that's probably my plan um, to, to try and set up a, an equity funding space uh, that we can actually call upon directly rather than going out to our pool of investors. And I say rather than, I mean, we still use all of those parties and we still work with everyone, of course, but to be able to fill the funding gap for people uh, in-house would be a great advantage. And and in terms of, you know, in, in terms of M&A activity within the, the brokerage sector, we've, you know, we've seen a number of uh, we've seen a number of transactions over the last couple of years um you know i suppose looking at say mantra looking at spf um uh, as the sort of the standout uh, standout examples um are you are you looking at would you consider acquiring any businesses through kind of to to offer you greater vertical integration whether that be on the insurance side uh, or 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 i say in the example of p10 where they have uh, they actually have an accountancy and tax division and now an estate agency division 
Um, or would you be open to or would you be open or interested in going in the other direction where maybe vertically becoming vertically integrated into a larger business or a different business and effectively being acquired? Uh, are these things that you think about you, you'd be open to? I think any broker, their biggest challenge is if you what, what's the exit plan? Yeah, you know, and you've got to look at how much your company can be worth in years to come. And it's very hard to increase the multiples on a standard brokerage because really the value is in the people in the business. Mm. So, you know, people don't pay massive multiples on their earnings because the people in the business could all walk out after that. So you have to have value in your business. And I guess that's where SPF uh, in particular have done a great job because they've got you know, a huge amount of insurance going through their business and ultimately inquire, acquired by an insurance company. So that's obviously a sensible way. So we, we, we do look at ways to add value to our business, something I started looking at probably last year. And I'd be open to different options, really. You know, um, Luckily, I've got a bit of time on my side to still work on that sort of strategy and, and to think about what the long-term exit is. But it's something that we've already started giving uh, some thought to. Um, so, yeah, watch the space and, and hopefully we'll be announced some things in due course. <laughs> okay, well, we're, we're, we're Maybe save that for the next podcast. We'll save that for the next one. We're definitely, well, you're definitely coming back on, Dean. Don't worry, we'll, we're, we're going to have you back one, one way or the other. Um, cool. And, and then... I guess we're starting to starting the wind down now. Um, outside of outside of work, we've obviously talked about uh, we talked about your your fondness for for Man United. What other things do you are you doing that sort of keeping you keeping you sort of on 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 a level playing field and and making sure that you're you're not all all, all work and no play. Yeah, you'll know this better than I, but it is a challenge, isn't it? You know, because you do get so engrossed in your business and you have to separate some time for yourself and your family. Otherwise, you'd go stir crazy, in my opinion, um, or burn out. So, yeah, it's something that, you know, I try to get to the gym uh, as much as I can, but often have to stop myself from replying to emails and answering the phone while I'm there sitting on, on the machines. Um yeah, I've got, got my family, got my children, so I like to take them out um, and do some stuff with them, walking or uh, my youngest likes swimming and stuff like that. So try to keep them as entertained as possible. Um, and then really, you know, football is my passion. Um, so, you know, unfortunately for some, I've got a season ticket at Man U um, and that takes a whole day out of the diary, being a southern bank, as, as they say. Um, so, yeah, so there's not a huge amount of time to do everything. Um, but I want to do more traveling, you know, over the next couple of years, you know, my wife and I, um, or, or the family, they be able to spend more time going to other countries and seeing more of the world, really. So I've, I've kind of said to myself, let's, uh, yeah, we've grown the business quite a bit. We're, we're doing okay. We could do better in certain things. I'm always looking at how we can do better. But I've also got to do better from a, a social aspect as well and, and try to get some travel time in there. That's been my plan for this year. Yeah, I, I I would second that as well. Um, got to the end of January and I still haven't booked a summer holiday yet, so starting to feel that pressure. Uh, <laughs> yeah, need to need to get something booked sooner or so, sooner or later. Um, <laughs> but anyway, um, and then I guess in, in terms of in terms of mentors uh, and or big influences in in your life and your career, have there been any particular people that stand out? I mean, a lot of people say their parents, but um, but including your parents are there any any people that have been big influences in your career or in your life that 
you know, you look back on it that you wouldn't be the person you are today without them? Um, I think when I was at Abbey National, there was uh, a lady there who ended up being my boss. She was very supportive. Uh, she told me where I was going wrong uh, in my younger days. Uh, that it put me on the right path. So, you know, big thanks to her. Um, but then I guess uh, throughout the latter part of my career, I had um, you know, a gentleman that I worked with at Abbey National, then Close Brothers and uh, Alpha. And when I went off and set up a genius, he set up uh, a mezzanine lender. And then we got back together to set up our brokerage. And we, yeah, he's, he's a little bit older than me, not hugely older, but we worked really well together. Um, and not so much a mentor, but someone that we could work well together and, and tap into each other's knowledge and stuff like that. So he's definitely a big player in, in how my career has gone and kind of the direction it's ended up in. Um, so, yeah. You know, I would say outside of that, though, you know, probably a couple of my really key clients, you know, we talk about business generally, you know, they've, they've formed businesses and, you know, one in particular has got all sorts of businesses, you know, that he's a shareholder in, great experience. So it's great just to chat to him about his experiences, how he's seen things and, you know, some of the stuff that he's told me, I think. Actually, that does ring true. So, yeah, I always look at what other people with knowledge and experience can bring to the table. And um, hey, I'm thankful that those guys were in my life to be honest to help. No, that, that's 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 great. Um, there's been a lot of there's been a lot of guests that we've had recently on the podcast who who either don't drink anymore or are taking steps to, to along that path to end to end sort of drinking uh, within their within their lives and where do, where do you stand on sort of alcohol and the alcohol and the and and the industry or, or generally uh in in your own life I, I know we've enjoyed a pint or two and I certainly had a glass of wine at Mipim uh back in March um but you know do you have any any thoughts on that any plans to sort of cut back or or, or go teetotal uh or are you or are you quite comfortable with uh with with sort of how your your relationship is with with uh, the demon drink I think my wife would love it if I went teetotal, uh, obviously. So that, that's the wrong answer. But um, the wrong answer is that, you know, I do still like to you know, have a few beers now and then and you know, go out with my clients for lunch or whatever it might be and have a glass of wine and chat. But I think it's in moderation these days. You know, I don't think you need to go crazy. Um, and I think certainly in a professional environment, you know, mipping for me this year versus mipping when I started going. 16 years ago a very different mipping now um yeah. you know when you first go you get overexcited and you go to every drinks party that you can and so forth now maybe just because i'm getting old you know i like to space it out I like to have time to check my emails i like to you know, spend a bit of quality time with clients rather than rushing from meeting to meeting and you know, i'll probably don't drink anywhere near as much as i used to you know so i think that it's in moderation, you've got, you know, in professional circles, you've got to be you know, careful about how you represent yourself and your company. Um, so I don't think there's anything wrong with the demon drink, but I think it's uh, where people get a bit too excited and go overboard. That's when they have the regrets the next day. So I'm thankful I don't really have that too often now. No, no, quite, quite. But yeah, <laughs> yeah, we, 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 we were well behaved at MIPU, I, I, I might add. Um, so we, we won't, com we won't comment on some others that we, that we know, <laughs> we know, we know, we know a little bit well. Um, okay. Well, and final question from me: If you were going to give your 
your younger self some some feedback some self-talk maybe your your teenage self and we didn't talk about your we didn't talk about your sort of the teenage years too much but um if you're going to give your your teenage self some self-talk some advice uh what would you say to yourself and why uh i probably would have read more and educate myself more and i don't mean that in the sense of qualifications because I, i've got quite far in life without too many qualifications i didn't go to university uh, I went to University of Life, as I always tell my team, um, and I think I've, I've learned a huge amount through my experience. But actually, I think these days, you know, education is even more on tap. You know, podcasts, um, Audible, things that you can listen to in the car instead of listening to the radio. You know, those songs on repeat. So, if I went back twenty years, I'd probably do more of that more education, more reading books and stuff like that to really understand different people's perspectives because, yeah, we all think we're doing the right thing. But actually, you might read one thing in a book or you might hear one thing on a podcast and you think, actually, that resonates with me. And, um, yeah, I think there's, there's a lot to be said for that. Yeah, well, I, I guess it's that lifelong learning, isn't it? And <laughs> and just continue to educate yourself uh, and and things will, uh, things will work out for you. But anyway, I think... A lot of the things that you're doing, Dean, uh, or you have done uh, in your, you know, I say long and varied career. You're not that old, but you know, it's still been quite, quite the career so far. Um, you're obviously going in the right direction. You know, you built a fantastic business, which we obviously have a, a very strong uh, working relationship between our two firms, uh, which I hope will continue uh, long into the future. Um, and obviously delighted by the success of your business finance division as well. Uh, so, so very much congratulations on that. Um, Dean, it's been a pleasure having you on the podcast. Now, before you go, um, if anyone wants to reach out to you, uh, what's the best way of someone getting hold of you? Is it is it LinkedIn? Is it through email? What's the how how would you like people to get to to get in touch with you after the podcast? Yeah, uh, thank you for having me on here. First of all, I would say that. Um, and um, if someone wants to reach out, I'm always uh, available on LinkedIn, or they can contact the office, um, or go onto our website, which is oriumfinance.co.uk. All right. And uh, well, for those of you who are, who are crazy enough to want to get in touch with me um, or would like to block me on social media, I'm at property funder. I uh, say so property underscore funder, I might add at property underscore funder uh, on Instagram, Twitter uh, and LinkedIn. So uh, and threads are uh, not that I've used threads more than twice. Um, thanks, Mr. Zuckerberg. So uh, so that's been that. But listen, I, I've been Michael Dean. I'm a property funder. Thanks to Dean Brown uh, for joining us today. Uh, Dean is the, the founder and managing director of Avorium Finance. Dean, thank you very much. And we'll talk to you again soon. Cheers, Michael.